you have your Bibles with you today, would you take them out and open to the book of Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, we'll be reading verses 27 through 30, the end of this chapter. And as you do so, I want to remind you of the ending of the book of Acts. Turn to Philippians, but I want to tell you how the book of Acts ends. In chapter 28, the last two verses, as Paul has now made it to Rome, and he has lived there, and this is how it concludes the book of Acts. It says, He lived there two whole years at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Without hindrance, if you read it in the Greek, that's just one word, unhindered. And that is very literally the last word in the book of Acts. And we could also say that just thematically, looking at the book of Acts, that is the final word over the book of Acts, unhindered. That the gospel went forward with great power, unhindered. Which might strike you as a little odd, because if you've read the book of Acts, you know it's filled with hindrances. And there's two main kinds. There's internal tension that the church experiences as they are growing, welcoming new members, adjusting to new challenges. And there is external opposition that they face from unbelievers. There is persecution. There is internal tension and external opposition that are throughout the book of Acts. And yet we get to the end and the final word over the whole thing is that he was preaching with all boldness and without hindrance. Neither of those trials, neither internal friction or external opposition, were sufficient to quell the move of the gospel forward into all the earth, from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The gospel went forward without hindrance. There's so much internal tension. We think of uh, Ananias and Sapphira lying to the Spirit. We think of uh, chapter 15, where even the apostles are gathering together to figure out what do they do with the new Gentile converts? What does it mean for them to be a part of the church? Uh, there's external opposition throughout. Peter and the apostles are dragged before the, uh, the, the court and the judge. Paul, of course, before he became a believer, was one of the greatest trials that the church faced. He was opposing them, killing believers in Christ. There was Stephen, who preaches his sermon in chapter 7 and is immediately stoned for it. Paul repeatedly is thrown in jail and brought before tribunals. There is all this opposition to the gospel, and yet the final word is unhindered. It goes forward by the power of God's Spirit, and nothing can stop it. As we come to Philippians, this is Paul's exhortation, that the Philippians are to walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. And there are going to be two things that will try to stop them from doing that. There will be the internal tension that they as a body of believers struggle with, just together, the everyday things of life that would threaten their unity. And there's going to be external opposition. There's going to be suffering for the name of Christ. And either one of these things can tempt believers to not walk in a way that is worthy of the gospel. And this is Paul's exhortation to do so. That's what we're going to hear as we read this. Verse 27 is his exhortation. And then verses 28 through 30 warn of these two imposing trials. So let me ask, if you're able, would you join me in the standing for the reading of God's holy and inspired word today? This is Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, 
and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict you saw that I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's pray one more time. Father, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant word that's given to us for our instruction, for our edification, for building up our faith in Christ, for drawing us together and instructing us that we might come to the maturity of the one man, Jesus Christ, that we might follow in his footsteps, walking as he walked. We ask that you will do this for us. Open the eyes of our hearts. Father, may this not be a blank page, but would you speak to us from it? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Paul's exhortation in verse 27 is, is memorable for many of us. It's clear. It says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's the first exhortation that Paul gives to the Philippians in this whole book. Up until now, he's been giving them the example of his life. He has talked about what it has meant for him to be in prison. He has been suffering under these other preachers who are preaching in order to make him jealous. He has been suffering because he's in chains, and he doesn't know how that's going to turn out. He'll be going before the Roman tribunal, and he doesn't know if they're going to sentence him to execution. He's talked about what it means for him to confess this truth, that to live is Christ, to die is gain. And how that truth has comforted his heart. It's given him perspective. It's given him direction. He's been giving his example of his life and his testimony to them. And now, in verse 27, he turns to the Philippians. Now it's the same exhortation to them to apply that same truth to their lives. And this is how he begins. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. What he gives us in this paragraph is what it means to walk in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. How do we accomplish that? How do we do that? Just as Paul has read his circumstances in light of the gospel, and when he has faced opposition, he said, that's okay, I rejoice because the gospel is going forth. If the name of Christ is being proclaimed, then I don't mind if my own circumstances are less than perfect. Now he's going to apply that to the Philippians as well and say, what does it mean for the gospel to be the driving force of your life? for you to look at your circumstances and say, they may be less than perfect. They may be far less than perfect. There may be much suffering involved, but if the gospel is going forth, if the name of Jesus is being glorified, then he can put up with that. He says, that's okay. And that means he's going to exhort them to do some things in this paragraph that are somewhat uncomfortable for them, perhaps. To move out of their comfort zone. He's going to urge them to pursue unity within the body of Christ as one of their highest goals. And that is often very difficult. It means being willing to set aside your own desires in order that the peace of Christ may be maintained in the church, that others might be served in, ahead of ourselves. And he's going to encourage them that in their suffering, that they are suffering for the sake of Christ, that all of their suffering... Believe it or not, what he writes in verse 29 is that your suffering for the gospel has been granted to you from God. That it is somehow even a gift of God for you to go through that with Christ and for the sake of Christ. 
And that's going to be how he explains this exhortation. He gives them, what does it mean to live a life that is worthy of the gospel? And yet we have to look at that exhortation a little more carefully. He says, in my Bible, English Standard Version, the ESV, he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You may have a slightly different wording if you're reading the NIV. He says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy. Both of those are very good translations. But there's a really interesting word that's sort of hiding beneath the surface here. The word that Paul uses for this conduct yourself, or let your manner of life, it's a Greek word, polytuesthe, that doesn't mean much to you, but it's not Paul's ordinary word that he uses when he's encouraging a church or exhorting a person to walk in a manner that's worthy of the name Christian. It's not his normal word. He usually uses the word peripateo. It means walk. That's sort of his normal metaphor, is walk in this way. Walk in these virtues. Walk in the path of Christ. But he uses a different word here, and it's very interesting. It's a word the Philippians would have understood very well. Because specifically it means living in a way that is faithful to your own citizenship. It says living as a citizen. That's the, the context. Even you hear the political nature of the word. The word is uh, polytuesta, politics. You hear that po- politics is in there. It says living faithfully as a citizen. That's what his word means. You see, he's writing to, to Philippi here, and Philippi prided itself on being a Roman colony. Even though it was quite a ways east of Rome, it was a long ways separated, they were a Roman colony, and that meant a lot to them. If we just went back 80 or 90 years or so to 30 BC when Octavian became the Roman Empire, the Roman Emperor, rather, he reorganized the city of Philippi. He resettled this city, and he moved into the city a lot of Roman citizens, a lot of Italians. He just sort of shipped them there in mass, and among them were a lot of military veterans who would have obviously had lots of civic pride, lots of patriotism about them, and he moved them into Philippi to settle it and to make it a Roman colony. As they were there, they constructed a forum. The city was governed by Roman law, appointed, enforced by military officers who were appointed directly from Rome. And his goal was that Philippi would essentially be a miniature Rome. Even though it was a long ways removed geographically, that he was going to settle this and make this into a miniature Rome a long ways away so that Roman citizens who were there would feel like they were at home, that that was where they belonged. And for them to walk as a citizen meant, I know you're not in Rome, you're a long ways away, but live as befits a Roman citizen. Take pride in your Roman heritage, walk by Roman law, and you know, encourage Roman customs. That's what it meant to live as a good citizen of Rome in a far-off colony to live as, as a citizen of the kingdom. It says it doesn't matter where you are, you can still live as befits a citizen of the Roman emperor, empire. And all of that is bound up in what Paul is saying here in verse 27. Except he gives it a slightly different twist. Because now he's telling the Philippians, live as befits your own citizenship. Even though you live in Philippi, Don't live as a Philippian. Don't live as a Roman citizen. Live in a way that befits your own citizenship as a citizen of heaven. That's your primary citizenship. We see that over in chapter 3, verse 20. As he gets towards the end, he says, very clearly, chapter 3, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. Same word. 
Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's saying, you are citizens of heaven. You're not in heaven. You're in Philippi. But that doesn't matter. Regardless of where you are, no matter how geographically separated you are from where your citizenship is, live as a citizen of heaven. That's what it means when he says, let your manner of life be worthy. Live in a way that befits what you claim in the place your citizenship lies. And so that gives us the picture that Paul is trying to encourage here of the church as a colony of heaven. He's talking to the church as a whole. He's saying, the church that we have here on earth, it's like we're forming this little colony that's a colony of heaven. Sure, we're not in heaven yet. Of course, we're still on earth. But it's to be in the church a colony of heaven in a distant land. And just as there's been a lot of talk lately about refugees, we know what refugees do when they come to a new country, when they're resettled. They sort of bond together in a common location and they live in a way that, that reflects their previous country. They maintain those customs. They maintain their traditions. They continue to, to gather in such a way that they feel at home, although they are distant from where they lived, distant from what true home might be, they, nevertheless, they're reinforcing those values. They're celebrating that native culture. They're remembering what defines them as a specific people, what makes them who they are. And Paul is saying, that's who you are as the church. That's who you are. You're a colony of heaven. You're a colony of heaven that, that gathers together once a week sort of to, to reinforce our common values to remember and to celebrate our heritage, that we are not our own, that we were bought with a price, that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, to remember and to, to edify ourselves and encourage one another to walk in a way that befits the laws of our country, not the laws of this one, that we walk according to the laws of heaven. You see, when we gather as a, for worship as a church, this is meant to be sort of a, just a miniature heaven, a little heaven here on earth that we've gathered together as our little colony of heaven, that we are citizens of heaven. We're not there yet. But even in this, in this land, in this culture, in this city where we live, we gather together and say, this is a little miniature heaven. And so we worship the Lord. We sing the songs of our praises. We, we eat with Jesus in this meal of redemption that we celebrate. We joyfully cast our treasures at his feet because he is worthy. Because he is worthy. It's like we're reenacting beforehand what we're going to do when we all get to heaven together. See, all anthropologists agree that the, the main thing you can do to reinforce the values of a society is to eat together, to share common meals. That's why family meals are so important because that's where we reinforce our identity, who we are, it's who we eat with. It's where we reinforce the, the standards and the traditions and, and remember what it is to be a family. And it's the same as a church. We eat a meal together. And in eating this meal together, we're reinforcing the common community standards. We're reminding ourselves, this is who we are. We're people of the Lord Jesus Christ, saved by his body being broken for us. His blood being poured out for us. We remember that. We remember that because it's called communion, we have community together. We're united to Christ and we're united to one another together as well. And Paul is saying to the people here, you are living as exiles. You are citizens of heaven. So how are you to live in this world? We gather together, but we also go out. 
The church is never meant to be sort of refugees who form a little ghetto and only live together with one another and never go into the wider culture. He says we always are going into the wider culture, but how do we live? He says you are to live not as a good citizen of this country. Perhaps you can do that as well, but your primary responsibility is to live as a good citizen of heaven. We are to make no mistake that our culture, this country, this city, everything around us in 21st century America, it has its own set of values. It has its own way of determining what people are worth. It has its own standards for what constitutes the proper use of money. What constitutes the proper use of time? How should we raise our children? What should they be taught to pursue? What constitutes the good life? All of these big picture questions, our culture has answers that it is eager to give you for these. Paul says, don't walk according to those answers. You are not a citizen of this culture. You're a citizen of heaven. We all know the challenge of living that way, living in a culture like this and yet not letting it seep into our souls. We know how tempting it is for us to just slowly but surely, almost unnoticeably begin to conform to the pattern of this world. Paul says, don't do it. Don't do it. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Be worthy of the gospel. Walk as you would walk even if you were in heaven, even if you were surrounded by the saints in that land with Christ reigning as king. Walk in that way. The question for us becomes, how do we begin to live that out? How do we so fill our mind with what the standards and the traditions and the rules of heaven are so that we can walk in a way that befits it? I remember what I believe was the first sermon I ever heard at this church. It was not when I preached. Uh, Jason Pedersen, one of our friends in the ministry, preached this sermon. It was over two and a half years ago, and I don't remember my own sermons that long ago, but I remember what he said. His catchphrase throughout his whole sermon was this, if it doesn't belong in heaven, it doesn't belong in your life. He was trying to answer the question, how do we make these decisions? How do we judge these values of of what is appropriate as a way for us to live? And he kept coming back to that. If it doesn't belong in heaven, it doesn't belong in your life. Now, Paul knows how many dangers would keep us from walking in this way. He knows how many temptations we will face. And he's going to deal with two of them here. They're the internal tension, the external opposition, because we face both of those in everyday life. And he knows that these are things that can prevent us from walking in this way. These are things that will tempt us to live by fear and to live by doubt and to just seep into the culture of this world instead. And so here's what he says, that we should pursue unity despite our differences. And we can have joy in the midst of our suffering. We can have unity despite our differences. This is his first point, really, after the exhortation. He says, walk in this way so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Because he knows one of the greatest temptations for believers is when disunity and tension arises within the church that we say, see, that's just it. It's just not what I expected. They're just letting me down and I'm out of here. We are going to be tempted to give up. We're going to be tempted to flee when there's any spirit of disunity that's in the body. And so here's his exhortation and his pursue unity. 
His goal is that when he hears of them, the report will be, they're standing side by side. And that's not how it is now. He's going to encourage them in chapter 4. There's two women in the church who aren't getting along. He says, encourage them. Encourage them to pursue unity. Because this is the primary issue. He says, pursue unity in the church. Would you join with one another? Don't let conflict grow and fester. And I read this and I think, I admit, I was almost a little curious, why is this the first issue that Paul would go to? Unity in the church. We are so tempted, at least I am, to think of unity as sort of the, the cherry on top of the Sunday of church. That was Sunday with an A-E at the end. That was a good pun. You can tweet that. <laughs> but, see, we think of, of unity as something that's an extra, just a bonus on top. If we have a good church, well, th- you know, we can deal with any kind of disunity, but if there's unity, that's great. But Paul says... No, pursue this first. When he thinks of walking in a way that is fitting and worthy of the gospel, that's where his mind goes first. To pursuing unity in the church. Why is that? And I think we have to turn back two pages in our Bible to Ephesians chapter 2 to understand. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul explains unity in the church is not simply a matter of, of just getting along with one another, of being together with people who we naturally agree with and get along with. He explains the gospel in Ephesians chapter 2 in two different ways. The first 10 verses, he explains it sort of as it relates to individuals. He says, individually you are dead in your sins and trespasses, and individually God has raised you up and seated you with Christ, and by grace through faith you are saved. But in the second second half of this chapter, verses 11 through 22, he describes it corporately. He describes it in view of the church, the people of God, the, the, the whole community together. And he describes it as the gospel being the work of Christ to bring together two sets of people who naturally are enemies, but through the gospel of Christ and through the cross of Christ can have unity in him. Listen to what he says. Starting perhaps in verse 12. says, Remember that you at that time were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. See, both go together. If you were separated from Christ, You are also strangers of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Here's verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. You see, he goes to the gospel and says, this is the work of Christ, that he takes people who by nature are totally enemies, that have nothing in common, that are not going to meet up for some common adventure of of hobbies that they share. He takes total enemies and he reconciles them to one another because through his cross he has taken away everything that stands between them. And he says that is what the, the witness of our unity is all about. The witness of our unity is a witness to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And if we would allow divisions to fester within the church... And if we would allow disunity to take root, he says you are, uh, you're opposing then the work of Christ. You're ignoring that Jesus on the cross has done away with this. He has brought us together. He in his own flesh has made peace. And so Paul will say unity, that's not just the cherry on top. It's the work of Christ. It's a central gospel issue because that is what Christ has done at the cross. He's taken people who by nature are alienated and brings them into one family. 
And so the first way, then, that Paul will encourage us, how are we to live as citizens of heaven in this world? He says we are to do so by pursuing unity, by understanding the value of unity. Now, how do we do that? It's one thing to talk about how good unity is, but it's a completely other thing to actually pursue it, to actually do the hard work and to to look at people and say, "I, I just don't know. I'm not sure... I mean, it's one thing to have unity with people I like, but God has now brought me into this church with all sorts of different people. How do we do that? And that's going to be in Philippians chapter 2, when he tells them in verse 3, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. If there's one simple verse that can go so far in helping us to pursue unity, it's this. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And how do we do that? Well, not to get too far ahead, but it's verses 5 through 11 of chapter 2, as he holds up for us the picture of Jesus Christ, exalted in heaven, equal with God from all eternity, praised with him, humbling himself, taking the form of a servant, and being found in human likeness, he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. He says, if that is the one that we are worshiping together, then certainly we can learn somehow to follow that example. To be willing to put ourselves below others, to become a servant of them. To follow in the footsteps of Jesus. There is a very clear progression here. Pursue unity, understand unity. How do you do it? Well, you do it by following the example of Christ. That's the kind of unity then that gives glory to Jesus, stands as a witness that this is a community that's not simply based on common interest, but a community based on the cross of Jesus Christ. Now here's his second exhortation. First is, don't let the internal tensions disrupt what Christ is doing, but pursue unity. Second, there's also going to be lots of external opposition. Even as you are pursuing to walk in a manner that is befitting your citizenship, there's going to be lots of external opposition And listen to what he says in verse 29. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict you saw that I had, and now hear that I still have. This is perhaps the most striking verse, maybe in all of Philippians, that that he says you are facing opposition, you're engaged in a struggle, there are those who who hate you, there are those who would mock you for what you're doing, there are those who would put you in jail. Paul was writing from jail. He knew this. And yet, don't let this suffering that you face, don't let all the opposition that is coming against what we are trying to do, don't let that cause you to live by fear. Don't let that cause you to doubt the goodness of what God is doing in you. Don't let that drive you away from Christ. Rather, understand the nature of your suffering, that it has been granted to you from God. It's a gift from God. How how striking to hear him say that, and yet that's what he's saying. He's saying that when you have the opportunity to suffer for the sake of Christ, that, that you now are following in the footsteps of Jesus. Your suffering is not in vain, but it is for the sake of Christ. You are united to him in that suffering. And see, he wants us to understand our suffering in the proper way. It's a gift. 
say. This is, this is perhaps the most, I don't know, this is the weirdest thing he has to say, but this is exactly what he means. One of the ways that we live by the rules of heaven in a world that is totally at odds with this is we understand suffering the way God talks about our suffering. Think of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I mean, have we heard Jesus say that? And do we remember he says, Rejoice and be glad when you're persecuted. For so they did to the prophets who were before you. So they're doing to the apostles now in the New Testament. So they're doing to you. And he says, your reward is great in heaven. Your reward will be great. Or consider the testimony of Peter and the apostles in Acts 5.41. It says, then they left the presence of the council. They'd been preaching and brought before the council. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That's a perfect picture of what it looks like to live as a citizen of heaven in this world. They underwent this circumstance that by any of our standards would have caused them to to just be discouraged, be fearful, be tempted to give up what they're doing, and yet they go away rejoicing. They say, this is what Jesus said, that we should rejoice when this happens. And they do. Because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. It's what Peter writes in 1 Peter He lived it out and he writes it to the churches as well. And he says, Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. But but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. He says, Don't be surprised when you face opposition to what you are doing. Don't be surprised that there will be those who hate you, that there will be those who sort of snort through their nose and roll their eyes when they hear what you're about. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, but rejoice because you share the sufferings of Christ. As we are united by faith to him in his life and we're united by faith to him in his death and we will be united to him in his resurrection, he says, so also you are united to Christ in his sufferings. What servant is there who is greater than his master? If he suffered, so shall we. And he says, don't be surprised, but learn that in the colony of heaven, we don't give up because of sufferings. We're not surprised. Rather, we rejoice. We rejoice that we've been counted worthy to suffer for the name. How easily we miss this perspective. This is, the, this is one of those values and cultures of heaven that is just completely at odds with this world and how easily we would forget And I think Paul is thinking of that very fact that it's so easy for us when we encounter opposition to allow that to just drive us into discouragement. Just drive us into fear, perhaps even into depression, perhaps even to giving up on the faith. And he is saying, be encouraged to rejoice in the midst of this, knowing that God has ordained this to come into your life, whatever it is, that it has been granted to you that there is no opposition, no suffering you will face in this life except that which has been granted to you from God. And if God, your good and loving Heavenly Father, has granted that you would walk through it, then He in His wisdom and in His mercy will see that you have the resources to get through it as well. 
that there is no suffering that comes except from his hand. There is no suffering that comes into your life except what he has ordained that you would walk through, even as you would go through a furnace that will be refining your faith, burning away the dross, refining the gold, getting rid of what is invaluable and keeping what is valuable and making it more so. He says, don't, un- don't misunderstand your sufferings. Don't misinterpret what is happening to you. How easy when we undergo sufferings, we say, ah, God must have given up on me. He's not there after all. Maybe I did something wrong. Maybe I'm not living right. What, is, what have I done that God would allow this into my life? And Paul says that's not what it means at all. When you undertake opposition and suffering, he says that does not mean that God has given up on you. It does not mean that somehow you've fallen out of his favor. Somehow he loves you less. Those are the lies that we are tempted to tell ourselves, aren't they? Those are the lies that we would hear from our culture that say, if, if, if your life is not going well, you're doing something wrong. God's not blessing you. And Paul says that will destroy your ability to walk as a citizen of heaven if you believe those lies. Rather, understand this, that it has been granted to you from God that you can suffer for his sake. Don't let it drive you into fear. Don't let it drive you into discouragement. Let it drive you into rejoicing with the apostles that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Rejoice that you too are counted worthy of that. That your name is written in heaven. That you have a citizenship there and we are awaiting a savior from there. And he is going to come and gather together all those who have been counted worthy to suffer for his name. He will gather us together and we will no longer be just a colony of heaven but heaven itself immersed for all time in the praise of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. But he says, even now, as you're here on this earth, walk in a way that befits your citizenship in heaven. Live as an exile, live as a refugee, live as a stranger and alien in this world, but a citizen of the country of heaven from where we await a Savior. Let's pray together. Father, these words are challenging These words are often difficult, and yet these words are full of life and full of hope and full of Christ. And so we ask that by your Spirit you would apply them to our hearts. May we not be the man who uh, would hear them and walk away and they go in one ear and out the other. Not be the man who looks in a mirror and walks away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But Father, may we treasure your word in our heart. May we live it out in our lives. May we believe and may we love the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.